Unsexy Business with Jamie Waller. Hi, this is Jamie Waller and welcome to my new series of podcasts called Unsexy Business. The podcast ties in with the release of my new book of the same name, details on that later. In this series, I'll be talking to a range of business owners and entrepreneurs. This isn't about Silicon Valley style corporations or the latest tech initiative. This is about traditional business models, thoughts and plans that could easily have begun in a pub or your own garden shed. Simple ideas that have become multi-million pound companies. It's these stories that interest me. From plumbers to parking, penny suites to second-hand cars, I'll be meeting the people behind some of Britain's most successful businesses. Welcome to Unsexy Business. My guest this week is Martin Dawes. Martin is the founder and past CEO of Coffee Nation. After dropping out of sixth form at 17, he began his career in 1996 with one main aim, and that was to put coffee in corner shops right across London. By 2007, he had 600 Coffee Nation kiosks across the UK. I began by asking Martin where his motivation for business came from. The way that I started was actually with a blank sheet of paper and to say, I want to start a business, and um, but actually I'm not, you know, I don't actually, I'm sector ag- agnostic, if you like. I can start anywhere that I want to. Um, so what I stumbled upon is something that is now becoming uh, well understood and recognised as a way to build extremely successful high-growth businesses, and that is to create a category that didn't exist before. Yeah? Uh, and so if I look at most of the companies that I'm working with, I help them become highly differentiated, and if they can actually get to the point where they've actually created a category and become king in that category, like the Airbnb, the Ubers, etc., as we were talking about earlier, uh, then you're playing in the field of one, and actually life becomes so much easier because actually you're not looking over your shoulder all the time, you're not having to, um, you know, you can turn down tenders and RFPs and so on and you can actually create your own bow wave and, and, and create your, dest- your own destiny. Which is exactly what I did, of course, slightly unknowingly at the time because, uh, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I had a small consulting business with my wife. It was a successful lifestyle business. Um, it was hugely reliant on people earning a day rate and um, I was pushing to grow it. And I remember saying to her, we'll get it to a million revenue and then I'll go off and look for something new to start. Uh, and she said, don't let me get in your way, uh, off you go. And I think she wanted me kind of out from under her feet. And she went on and carried that on and that's become a hugely successful business. So uh, I was looking for something that actually could be uh, product-led, where we could build a brand potentially. The, pri- the primary ambition was actually to find something that could be that could be brand product uh, and that, that had more predictable growth um, where I think there was a lot of, with, with the consultancy, it was me pushing a lot. And what I was coming to realise was actually I needed to find a business where it was more about pull rather than push. Uh, I took some cash from the consultancy in agreement with, with my wife. Um, the business experience that I got was a fair amount of business experience. So that was primarily around dealing with large companies because our clients were large businesses. So we were a B2B business. Um, so I think that may, meant that I was quite comfortable picking the phone up, talking to a CEO of a big company. That wasn't an issue. So the genesis of Coffee Nation was I read an article about a um, photocopy business in a, in a magazine called Business Age. This was 96. And... Uh, the company was called TRM and it put photocopiers into news agents, drug stores, American company, convenience stores, etc. Uh, it was listed on NASDAQ. They'd expanded to the UK and they had photocopiers in thousands of 
news agents up and down the UK. And we're talking dingy news agents. You'd walk in. This was this was just after the lottery had started. So it was a similar principle. You have a terminal in a lottery station. It's a, it, the, the, the attraction to the retailer is a, it's a driver of footfall into the store and then people buy something else. And the photocopier was a similar thing. Um, the, the company TRM owned the asset. It was a reconditioned photocopier. They'd provide the paper, the inkjet cartridges, the toner, all that sort of stuff, maintain the machine. And then the revenue was split with the retailer. And if they did 1,000 copies a week, they'd keep 10%. If they did 2,000 copies a week, they'd keep 20% or whatever. So it was a sliding scale. And I liked that model because I thought it was a little bit of revenue from lots of locations. And certainly the thing that I found in my business career is eyes front, move quick, find something that works. Um, and when you kind of get that sniff, that sense, that smell, that you're really onto something, just don't stop. Crack on. Um, and it's a trite phrase, but that first mover advantage, if you're onto something good, is very, very significant. So I went to New York and I saw a bunch of things. Uh, frozen yogurt, I saw, I nearly became a, a, a European master franchisee for, for a frozen yogurt company, but thought, hang on a minute, it's too cold in the UK, that's not going to take off. Interestingly, I think 20 years later, it kind of has got somewhere, but you know, not not significant. A couple of other things I saw, um, but uh, but then saw coffee in convenience stores in the US and uh, had this business model in the back of my mind. And I'd also thought, so the business model was the, key, was the first thing, and I thought, okay, what is the product that I can put into convenience stores, news agents, of which Britain has got thousands of them, even more than, than it does now. Um, and I thought of travel books, I thought of toiletries, I thought of bakery products, all sorts of things. But nothing sort of stuck. Went to America, literally walking the streets, bumming around, stayed with some family, my wife's in Brooklyn, got the tube into Manhattan each day, looking for ideas, saw the frozen yogurt thing, etc. And then one day, street corner, Starbucks on one corner, a 7-Eleven on the other corner, and Starbucks I'd sort of, sort, sort of knew something of in the back of my mind. Coffee was growing. Um, I think Pret-a-Manger, well, Pret-a-Manger was established in the UK at the time. It was a small business. And I was aware of something. There was a movement towards better quality food and, and drink out of home in, in, in the UK at the time. So there was something that I was aware of sort of buzzing around in my head. Um, Starbucks I looked at, I literally remember thinking... Looks impressive, coffee's great, blah blah blah. But it's 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 lots of real estate. It's real estate and it's labour. <laughs> it's lots of people, and it looked too complicated. You know, Seven Eleven went into it, and there was a bank behind the till point. There was a bank of filter jugs of coffee. You know, flavoured coffee and all sorts of things. And this stuff was flying out the door, dollar a cup, and and I thought, bingo, that's it. And I thought, if it works here, that would work in London. So um, I saw, you know, I thought coffee is the product that I can put into news agents on that, but attached to that business model. So I had no prior experience in coffee whatsoever, um, and in truth, it wasn't that I was in love with coffee that was the prior that was the driver, but had some had some retail experience through some of the clients that we had in the consultancy. So it was a business a business play. I thought it can really work. Uh, and, I, and I went away and researched it. So I went back to my hotel, got out the yellow pages, looked under coffee machines, um, met a company uh, who came to see me. They rocked up in a big A-team-style a van in the hotel car park. Uh, guy got out, met me in the lobby, and, he, and, and invited me to get in the back of his of his minivan. 
uh, and this was now in Minneapolis because I'd flown to Minneapolis. There's a Mall of America there, which is the biggest man in the world at the time. I, I thought I'd have a look around there and see if there's any ideas that um, anything there that spurts my imagination. Invited me into the back of the minute. I thought, hang on a minute, I'm 3,000 miles from home. I'm getting in the back of a bloody A-team style van with a bloke I've never met before. I'm slightly concerned about this. Um, but then I got in, there was thick carpet, two swivel leather seats, and, and he served the, made the coffee and all the rest of it. Amazing coffee, beautiful machine. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know, a coffee machine in news agents, you know, I'm onto something. But this machine's jolly expensive. And I thought, this, it just felt way too expensive. He, he wanted to sell me the machine. We'd buy the coffee. You know, it was a, it was a you know, it was a, it was a, it was a whole package. So I, I came home, um, and um, I, I got a little office in Soho in Wardour Street, a room half the size of this with a nice window. Got a computer, blank sheet of paper. Absolutely terrifying, but I had I had a direction of travel. I started researching. Went to the city library, uh, as you did then, and. Um, Research the sort of the volume of all the sorts of places in the UK where I thought this could work, ranging from laundrettes to, to bookstores to news agents. But you know, news agents and petrol stations and so on, I thought was a good place. And I found that there were little tabletop instant coffee machines. And of course, remember that then most people drank Nescafe at home or even Mellow Birds. Then cappuccino was something that you had in a restaurant or when you went on holiday. It was a it was pretty unusual, you know. And it wasn't until the late 90s, and I don't know if you remember, but there was a whole um, plethora of newspaper articles about people walking around drinking coffee out of something with like that and talking about, this, I feel like I'm a baby drinking out of a baby's cup and how unusual it was and there was the coffee wars and who'd got the best coffee and the best cappuccino and so on. So it was unusual. It was a new, it was a new thing. The clever bit uh, was that it was exactly the business model as per photocopier company, right? So I would put a coffee machine into a retail outlet, and it started off as literally dingy, dingy sort of news agents. The first one was on the Walworth Road in South London, and um, and I would provide the coffee machine. I would fund it. I would plumb in the water. Um, I would provide the kit. I would own the kit. Nestle loved the idea because it got their brand of Nescafe out into non-traditional locations. Remember, Nestle Nescafe is a grocery brand. It's jars of coffee on a supermarket shelf. So this enabled them to put the brand of Nescafe into non-traditional locations. Um, they branded the front of the machine for me. We designed some signage. They paid for all that package. I mean, talk about confidence. I mean, I remember meeting the board of Nestle in their head office in Croydon. It's a huge tower. And they loved the idea. You're listening to Unsexy Business, and my guest this week is Martin Dawes, the founder and pop CEO of Coffee Nation. I went from corner shops, news agents, small news agents, uh, where it was where it didn't work. The volumes of coffee that we were selling were just too low uh, because people wouldn't wouldn't think of buying a cup of coffee in that kind of location. And I remember having a proposal to do some market research, asking people whether they'd buy a cup of coffee in a news agent. And I thought, actually, what's the point of doing the research? Because the most, most people can say is, well, maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. What's the, you know, <laughs> you've kind of got to build it and they'll go on. Um, and progressed from there to neighbourhood stores. So then I approached Spa. They loved it and they said, let's do 10 trials and if it's successful, we'll roll out with you. Nobody else, even then, could do or was talking the same concept that I was. They liked the revenue share model because it meant they didn't have to buy lots of kit. So with the, with the convenience store chain, I was into better locations, professionally run neighbourhood convenience stores. Often they had food to go, etc. But it was still early days in, in convenience retailing. 
you know, now think of around that time, people like Tesco were starting the express chain, you know, so it was an interesting time. It was a set, timing is often the critical element in, in business success. And it was, you know, often it's slightly hidden to the founder, but it was a key, it was a key, the timing was superb because it was convenience retailing at one end, quality food to go at the other end and, and the growth of coffee as well. So it was a kind of triangulation to create good timing. Um, the results of the convenience stores was, were, were a little better, but still not good. And we tried to, you know, coffee with a newspaper, coffee with a sausage roll, you know, everything to try and link something to the coffee to make people buy the coffee. Early 98, so I was, I was running very short of cash, very close to saying, you know, this isn't going to work. I had to let my ops manager go because it just wasn't generating the revenue. And it was actually by me going out one lot, so kind of slightly sort of last roll of the dice to say, you know, I've got to, I've got to, you know, find out what's not, what's, what's the problem. Part of the part of the distraction for me was was managing the relationships with people like Spine all days in the B two B sense, and actually where I needed to focus my energies was actually to be in the stores and actually, you know, look at customers and listen and and, and find out. What would make this work? What was the problem? Why weren't people buying the coffee? And I remember meeting a guy at the time who was, who was courting to be an investor, and he said, how much time do you actually spend out where, you, where the money's made? And I thought it was a bloody good point. And I think one of the things that actually uh, was a key component of my success was, was my willingness to listen to people, uh, both then and later on, who had been, who'd been there and built things very successfully and recognised that you, know, you need people around you that have been successful if you're going to succeed yourself. So I got out, turned the phone off, did a tour of the stores, and of course I'd done things like I'd got stores all over the bloody, machines all over the country, as opposed to keeping them in London where, you know, nuts. And I literally remember slightly with the collar turned up, standing in the corner of a store. The manager said, yeah, it's great, it's lovely, blah, 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 but the machine was spotless, because of course it wasn't really often used. Um, guy came in, sort of, you know, picked up a sandwich, walked up to the machine, had a look at it. You know, it was a nice machine on a unit that I designed, sign, you know, coffee to go, 59p or whatever it was, you know, the drinks, etc. how to use the machine. Um, and he hesitated, looked at it, turned, walked away. Um, and, and then he looked back and he came over to me and he said, are you something to do with this machine? And I said, yes, it's my company. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe you'll buy a drink. And then he said, look, I, you know, he said, it's a bloody good idea. So I kind of, you know, my spirits lifted, and and he's. But then he said, "But," and I thought, well, "Here's the, you know, what, what's he going to say?" And he said, "But it's the, the problem is what you're selling is exactly the same as I can make by putting the kettle on. You know, I've got a jar of Nescafe back in the office, and you know, I can do that and make myself a cup of coffee, and I don't need to come here and pay fifty pence for it." And that and that was the eureka moment. That was the the aha moment. And, and it was bittersweet because, the, uh, you know, I was out of cash. I was 10 grand over my overdraft limit. I was hanging on by my fingernails, telling my accountants that I would um, wind the business up in a, a professional way so that I wouldn't be struck off as a director and I could have another go. And at, and at that, that exact same point, I realised the, the error of my ways, which had been to put costs first, i.e. a small low-cost machine, and uh, because I thought then people would only be prepared to pay 50p for a cup of coffee in these kinds of locations, so I'd, I'd, it was a it was a it was a cascade of errors starting bottom up as opposed to getting it right from the top down. What I should have done was say put the customer first, give them a product that's going to knock them off their feet, which is what this guy said to me. You've got to wow me with a great product, and then I won't have a problem about paying a higher price. 
So I went back to the office, realised there are my ways, literally uh, rang a um, machine manufacturer, I think they're up in Liverpool, and I think sort of literally convinced him to lend me four proper espresso machines. They were about four or 5,000 each, and they still sat on a unit, um, but I designed a bigger unit, it was made of MDF, um, fell apart if you put some coffee on it, and you know, but the Coffee Nation name appeared for the first time. I put the drink price up to sort of 70p, which felt like a huge, bold move. And it was a tabletop, bean-to-cut machine, fresh coffee beans, ditched the whole relationship with Nestle, Nescafe, and they thought I was nuts because they thought coffee, the nation, you know, Nescafe was, was the way to go. And this real ground coffee thing wouldn't catch on. Um, price went up to 70p, bean-to-cut machine, fresh beans, fresh milk, and, uh, and so swapped out four of the instant machines in four of the locations I've got, two with Spa, two with Aldo's, and Coffee Nation, and, uh, and the sales block. And then I saw a machine, um, ironically, that, that was the machine from the company that I'd seen in Minneapolis two years previously, and they got this great big machine with an integral fridge that touch buttons on the front, but it was beans, fresh milk, built like a brick shit house. Um, and, but it, they were based on the west coast of the United States. And Derek said to me, well, what are you waiting for? Get on a plane and go, and I said, you want me to fly? He said, yeah, get on with it, man, you know? Um, and I went to see them, and they said, yeah, great, we love the idea, you know, um, we'll supply the machines. So, so I then spent some of the money then developing the concept to the next stage. And the thinking then was to, um, I think it was that we, I needed to get into, into higher foot traffic locations, premium retailers, um, so I started looking at people like oil companies, motorway service stations, etc., and developed the concept further. So I got this bigger machine. Um, I had a company uh, uh, create a the concession unit, which was a, a, a glass fibre unit machine, sat in the middle, not on a shelf anymore. We had a, we had a shelf sort of built at the front. There was a bin. Um, it all lifted up, so you got all the storage inside with the bean hoppers and so on. Um, and um, and it was all plumbed in. It was a meter and a half wide, backlit, beautifully branded Coffee Nation. Put the drink price up now to a pound twenty. Um, and I approached uh, now. It was doing the same thing again, hitting the phones, um, and going out to people like Sainsbury's, Texaco, BP, um, uh, Welcome Break, Motorway Services. You know, re- people where I thought this would be would be a good thing and um, pitching to them uh, this new category that didn't exist before. And that took me to the next stage. And, you know, interesting, and of course, you know, senior people in big companies uh, can take decisions, they can take risks, they can try new ideas. Revenue share model, and now, of course, got, you know, the stakes got higher because this was now a chunk of change. You know, it was now we were back up to 14, 15,000 pounds per installation. But of course, if we were in the higher footfall locations, premium locations, then the thinking was we'd sell a lot more coffee at a higher price, and therefore this would, you know, the wheels would turn and it would make money. BP said uh, pre raising out private equity funding, they said we could put you in every BP store in the country, but it can't be called Coffee Nation. We want the system, we want your operating system, and what we'd excelled at was creating this category. Um, and it was a bit like, as my director used to say, a swan. So it's gliding along on the surface, but the feet are paddling underneath. Very serene, but paddling underneath. Yeah? And what we call 
we, we call this our operating system. So the combination of the brand guardians, the maintenance technicians, the call center, the logistics, the how-to guide, the operating manual, etc. That gave us this category leadership, self-serve gourmet coffee. So you could either have all of us, or you could have all of us, or none of us, right? You, but this was, you know, we own this category, right? And we um, um, and we realised that if anybody else was going to come into this space, they'd have to go through all the same shit that we'd gone through, learning our space. You know, we'd learned our business. BP came along, for example, and said we could put you everywhere, but it's got to be called BP or whatever we're going to call it. But it isn't going to be Coffee Nation. So we took a very, you know, very. It was a kind of a, you know, seminal point because we said, you know, we could grow fast, but we turned down the BP thing. That became Wild Bean. Tesco was the next deal we landed. That was in 2002. We started trials with with Tesco. We signed a contract with them in the end of 2003. And, you know, and our relationship there went all the way up to, I mean, I met Sir Terry Leahy, for example, who was the CEO at the time. They loved the concept. Um, they were very professional to deal with. Great fun. You, you know, learn a lot from them. They learned a lot from us, in fairness. It was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great relationship. We rolled out across the Tesco Express network of convenience stores, um, and then other deals followed, Esso, uh, Summerfield, Sainsbury's Locals as well. So we had seven major contracts when we sold the company, and they were long-term contracts. Typically, there would be four or five-year uh, exclusive deals. Um, and we won lots of awards. Uh, and, of course, there were, there were many difficult times. Of course, there were... We developed a, um, a that we, we then took the decision to develop our own equipment. We were generating a lot of cash, so we invested in what we call third generation, which was um, very similar to what you see now in Costa, as Costa Express, a touchscreen. So we eliminated any means by which you could incorrectly select the wrong drink or put the wrong size cup in, loca- in the place or whatever. So eliminate the wastage. We introduced filter coffee as well as espresso-based beverages. Um, Touchscreen, it cleaned itself completely automatically. Um, much bigger bean cassettes, milk purgles, um, so it was much higher capacity fresh milk, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it cut the labour cost per week from about an hour per day to an hour per week. But you know that was a a one million pound project for over an eighteen month period. And I think it, it was you know. So it was ju- it was it was it was you know it was it was rock and roll. It was very exciting. So, you know, there was always going to be an exit with private equity backers, as I said. Uh, interestingly, uh, having the private equity backers, and they were good. Uh, they, were, they brought a lot of discipline and a lot of experience to the board. I always felt they were on side, you know. There, you know, there were ups and downs. It, took, you know, it, was, it was two years before we landed the next deal. So that, you know, there were, I think there were times then when I felt a little bit, you know, hot under the collar because I thought, shit, where's the next, you know, the next one coming from? But, but, you know, the board operated really well. We were very disciplined. I think one of the things that actually made the business successful over the long term, and remember, we were together, and it was that same group of people for, at board level, eight years. We wanted to get to a certain sort of scale of, of the business. And um, so it was, it was, it was um, you know, you have a long list of things, you know, customer contracts, you know, uh, pipeline of trials. Uh, how many new channels have you know have we proven? Have we proved all elements of the the, the business model? You know, etc. etc. And the, you know, the truth was, we were only a, we were just getting going. You know, even today, really, if you think about where Coffee's got it, it's only just getting going. Really, they could take it all around the world, and that that ultimately was the thinking that we would take it into um, Europe and even the, you know take it to the states and so on. 
But it was brought, you know, it was either going to be a, an aim float, trade, a trade buyer, or another private equity house. In, in one sense, it didn't matter. I mean, my primary concern, I think, um, in many ways, was uh, I wanted to see a great home for the company. I wanted the company to carry on and be able to do what it was great at doing and just got going at. So I wanted a good home for the business. That was my primary concern. Uh, my secondary concern was that there had to be a good return for our investors. Uh, you know, and the business angels were still in. So I had a legal responsibility to look after all shareholders, not just put my own interests at, at first. So I was very aware of that. And then I suppose then uh, next was that I'd ideally like to continue if I could, you know. So we had we had various interested parties. Um, we nearly sold to an American private private family fund that was backed by um, one of the biggest retailers in the U.S. So that deal went away. So we we paused. We grew the company more, and then we went a little bit later. It looked like it was probably going to be a trade sale, but one of the challenges was we didn't know which way it was going to go. I I, I looked at it and thought, and there was another there was another buyer. There was two pots. There was either trade or there was private equity, and it was jolly difficult to see which way it was going to go. And of course, I had to, you know, it had to work for everybody. But it had to, I had, you know, it had to be a, a successful deal for the exiting investors. And I wanted to take some money out the ta- on off the table at that point as well. So I had to work in that sense. But I wanted to roll forward. But I could see there was a fair probability that I could end up working for a large company. You know, so Coffee Nation would become a wholly owned subsidiary of Big Co. And therefore, there may never be another exit opportunity. At that point, I decided. I remember having dinner with our PE guys, and, and I said, "Look, I'll, sw- I'll, I'll switch to, to your side. I'll, I'll, I'll go from buy side to sell side, and we'll exit together." And so, so we sold March '08. I think in one in, in, in one sense, I would have liked to have stayed longer for sure. I would have liked to have carried on. It's easy to look back and say, "Oh yeah, well, you know, I could have taken it much further and grown it to greater heights, and and so on." Don't forget, there are 11 business leaders in this series, all with different stories about how they took a very simple idea and transformed it into a multi-million pound success. Sometimes traditional thinking really does pay. All of the interviews featured in Unsexy Business are also featured in my new book of the same name. There you can read the more in-depth stories behind these entrepreneurs and their impressive journeys to success. There's also one or two anecdotes that we couldn't possibly put into the podcast, along with hundreds of tips on how you can start and build a successful business too. If you get over to Amazon, you can buy a hard copy or digital version of Unsexy Business now. It is also for sale in most major bookshops, including Waterstones and WH Smith. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe on your podcast app. This means that you'll get each new episode automatically. Do join me next time, and until then, goodbye. Goodbye.